Good morning. My name is Matthew Eichert, and uh, as we get started together in the Word of God this morning, I would invite you to join me in Isaiah 49 as we continue our series on Behold Your God uh, through this middle portion of Isaiah together. Uh, Before we look together at the Scriptures, uh, let me just thank the elders of this church this session uh, for the opportunity uh, to take this sabbatical. Uh, this is something that uh, Rachel and I uh, really need. Uh, we find ourselves very exhausted, uh, very thankful, uh, and in need of a refresh and a reset as we look toward a new opportunity to continue forward in ministry together, uh, hopefully for another 10 years. It's hard to believe that it's been almost that long uh, together. Uh, I will also say this, if uh, you are a parent of children, nursery-age children, elementary-age children, uh, middle school and high school-age children, uh, we'll be having a parent meeting next Sunday morning uh, in the fellowship hall at 9 a.m. during the Sunday school hour, really to talk uh, about uh, what we can expect as we move through the summer months together, and uh, we look forward to that time. Again, this morning we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 49, so please uh, join me there now. Isaiah chapter 49, as we look together at the first six verses of this chapter. Isaiah chapter 49, verses 1 through 6. Remember as I read that this is the very word of God, that it has been given to us, preserved for us, uh, for our good and for the eternal glory of God's name. Listen to me, O coastlands. Give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword, in the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow, in his quiver he hid me away. He said to me, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain, I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity." Yet surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense with my God. And now, the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, as we give our attention to this portion of Isaiah, God, we pray that you would open our eyes, open our minds, open our hearts, to the truth that is being proclaimed to us here. That you would enable us by the grace of your Holy Spirit to see this servant of the Lord high and lifted up. That we would see the Lord Jesus Christ as the Savior of sinners, as the Redeemer of all those that you call to yourself. And that we would understand together that this morning, And in every moment of our lives, we have reason to hope, reason to be excited, reason to worship because of Jesus. We pray these things now in his name. 
Amen. As we think about this portion of Isaiah, as we consider what what the prophet is, is saying to us here in chapter 49, as we really consider so many of the ideas and and themes and realities that have been discussed really since January in this series. I don't know about you, but but there have been several times that I've just had to sit back and think, it just sounds too good to be true. It's just too good to be true. Yes, what's being said, what's being explained, what's even being proclaimed by Isaiah and by the Lord himself, it is wonderful, it's marvelous. These are messages full of hope, full of salvation, full of a future, full of expectation, but isn't it really just too good to be true? When we think about what God has promised an everlasting salvation, not simply from exile in Babylon, but a salvation that will stretch, reach into every single part of our lives and every single part of our world. If you're anything like me, you sit back and think, how is that possible? How can God really be about that work when we see so much brokenness, so much discouragement? So much hardship. This morning, as we look together at Isaiah 49, we are going to see not only what God promises, but how he intends to bring those promises to fruition in our lives for all eternity. This morning, we are going to talk, yes, about discouragement. We're going to talk about desperation. We're going to talk about the realities of hardship in life. But we are also going to hope together. There is a sense in which in Isaiah 49, we are going to be surprised together. And ultimately, I I hope, I pray that together we will see the sufficiency of Jesus Christ together as his people. As we make our way through these six verses, we're going to have three points that we look at together. The preparation of God's servant, the frustration of of God's servant, and finally, the vindication of God's servant. Before we begin to look at the preparation of God's servant, let's think a little bit about this passage of Scripture and really what we've been looking at together. First, I'll remind you that in Isaiah 40 through 66, and especially in, in these chapters 40 through 55, God has been describing through the prophet Isaiah a coming salvation, Yes, the people have been disobedient. Yes, the people will enter into a time of discipline. Yes, the people of God, specifically the southern tribes of Judah, they will be taken forcibly into exile by the Babylonians, but God is not finished with them yet. Isaiah has been proclaiming a coming salvation, a better future for God's covenant people. The great message of hope for us is that those promises, that future, extends far beyond the national land and the nationality of the Jews. It extends to all those who are his by faith. Second, we're looking at Isaiah 49 this morning, and many of your Bibles will have the heading, The Servant of the Lord, over this chapter. 
I remind you that this is the second of four servant songs in Isaiah's prophecy. This particular song is autobiographical. That means the servant is talking about himself. He is describing his own work for the listening audience. As you look at the passage carefully, you'll notice that the servant is identified specifically in verses 3, 5, and 6. You'll also notice that this passage begins with an encouragement, really a mandate. Listen to me. If you've been with us even for the past several weeks, then then you'll be familiar with this language. God has consistently called his people to attention. Yahweh has been encouraging, demanding that his people listen to the truth, to the life, to the hope that he has been proclaiming over them in spite of their sin, in spite of their disobedience, in spite of their inability. What's interesting here is that it's actually the servant of the Lord who is calling the people to listen. Even from the very beginning of this passage, we come to see that the servant has a very interesting that's a word I'll use, relationship to Yahweh. There's a sense in which the, the servant relates to Yahweh and yet is also Yahweh. As New Testament believers, we understand that this servant is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, who is very God of very God and yet also is of a distinct person from the Father. What's so beautiful about Isaiah 49 is that the passage begins, the chapter begins with hope and with a broad hope. The servant says, listen to me. But who is his first audience? The coastlands and the peoples from afar. Before we even begin to look at the preparation of the servant, I want us to understand together. Isaiah 49 wants us to understand together. God himself wants us to understand together that this saving work, that the work of redemption, restoration, the work of lifting up those who are laying face down in the dirt, the work of bringing back those who have been scattered afar, is a work that will extend to those from every tribe and tongue and nation. So how does God go about the work of of preparing this servant? Well, that really begins in the second half of verse 1 with the naming of the servant. You see here that the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God of Israel, he calls the servant from the womb. And from the body of my mother, says the servant, he named my name. This is a commissioning of the servant who also, it's important to make note of this, is actually fully human. So the servant is is somehow much more than us, but also made like us. This servant has been named. We see in verse 3 that Israel is the name given to the servant here in Isaiah 49. If you're familiar with Scripture, you're familiar with with all of the names that Jesus Christ has given throughout the 66 books of the Bible, then you'll know that oftentimes Jesus is referred to as the better Adam, the greater representative, the perfectly obedient one, 
But I think it's important for us to understand together that Jesus Christ is also the greater Israel. He is the one who will actually be obedient. The one who will follow in full fidelity the law that had been given by God. The one who is capable of actually attaining righteousness. And the one who lives forever in covenant relationship with Yahweh. But it really goes beyond that when we think about the broader context of Scripture, doesn't it? Just think about all of the names given to Jesus Christ, the true, the perfect servant of the Lord. He is the Word of God, the light of the world, the bread of life. He is the good shepherd, the living water. He is faithful and true and alpha and omega. This servant has a name. And his name is Jesus, for he will, he will save his people from their sins. Secondly, we see that there's there's a honing of the servant as he continues to be prepared. Look with me at verse 2. The servant says that the Lord has made his mouth like a sharp sword. Later, he says that the Lord has polished him like an arrow. What does that mean? It means that this servant is going to be, in many ways, violent about carrying out his task. It means that the servant of the Lord is being weaponized for his task. It means that the servant of the Lord is a warrior. This shouldn't surprise us again as we think about the bigger picture of Scripture. Just think about the way that Jesus is described when he returns in the book of Revelation. I want to read for you just a portion of Revelation 19. As God begins to describe Jesus and reveal Jesus in this chapter, he's described as one whose hair is white, who is wearing a robe, who is riding on a horse, and it says, from his mouth, comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the servant of the Lord, one who will accomplish all that has been laid out for him by the Father, one who will be violent against the powers of darkness for the glory of God and the good of his people. It's interesting as we think about the preparation of the servant, and particularly the honing of the servant here. One commentator notes, it's actually Alec Motier. He says, the sword wins victories close at hand, while the arrow hits a distant target. So even here we begin to see That God's work through the servant, that the salvation that is being secured for the people of God is both close at hand. It does apply to those who are in Babylon, but it goes much further than that. It goes to those from around the world. So as the servant is being prepared, he is being named by name, called, commissioned to the work. He is being honed, weaponized as a warrior in the work. But then we see something interesting in verse 2. It's the hiding of the servant. Yes, Yahweh has made the mouth of the servant like a sharp sword, but in the shadow of his hand he hid me. 
He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. What, what's the deal? What, why, why, why the honing of the servant, but now the hiding of the servant? Well, think about the way Scripture talks about the incarnation of Jesus. When the fullness of time had come. There's a sense in which God Almighty, in his sovereignty, in his wonder, in his power, in his discernment, has been preparing the servant of the Lord from all eternity past to be revealed at the right time for the full accomplishment of his work. Finally, we see here the calling of the servant. What is the servant actually meant to do? Verse 3. He, Yahweh, said to me, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Never forget that the ultimate purpose of Jesus' coming in this world is to bring greater glory to the Father. To bring greater praise and worship and honor to the Father. We're going to come back to this later. But keep that in your mind as we continue to walk through this passage together. Really, as I I thought about the preparation of of the servant, the preparation of Jesus Christ, the preparation of all that he is and all that he was to to accomplish, I I kept thinking about the forging of a weapon. Now, that may bore you to tears, but I've actually convinced myself that in another life, I would have liked to maybe try to be a musician or a blacksmith. I know that's strange and probably not really necessary in today's world, but it just always looks cool. Now, when you think about the forging of a weapon, I, I want you to actually think about the forging of a samurai sword. I researched that this week, and it was, it was incredible that the finest examples of, of samurai swords were actually forged between the, the 14th and 16th century, and we still can't figure out exactly how they did it. I also learned that if you watch demonstrations of samurai swords being used, they often will cut bamboo, and I thought, well, that's because it's you know, plentiful in East Asia. That's not the reason. It's because bamboo has the same density as human bone. They're practicing on purpose. (laughs) Some of your faces are uh, showing that that was a little graphic, but that's okay. It takes months, months to actually forge a proper samurai sword. But what do you do with it? You then put it in a scabbard for the time appointed. It is a weapon with a real, beautiful, devastating, freedom-bringing purpose to be used at the appointed time. That is the preparation of the servant here in Isaiah 49. God is preparing his servant, calling, naming his servant, honing his servant, and hiding his servant away because when the time comes, he will be unleashed for great purpose and for a great salvation. Even now in Isaiah 49, we should start expecting something marvelous. We should begin to be very excited. Our hearts should respond to this proclamation with hope, with confidence, with joy, with longing, because when the servant of God is revealed, when Jesus shows up, amazing, life-giving, freedom-bringing things are going to happen. Just think about the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Mark chapter 1. 
Jesus is baptized by his cousin John in the Jordan River. The Holy Spirit descends upon him, and the, and the Father declares, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then Jesus, after enduring temptation, winning victory over Satan himself, says what? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Second, we we see the frustration of the servant. This is in verse 4. Now, I'll be honest, this may be a, a surprising idea to us as we really dig into what's being said here. Look back at it with me again. The servant says, I, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. We see here the exhaustion of the servant. In, in carrying out the calling of the Father, the calling of, of God, the servant works. He spends his strength his time, his energy, his emotion. But it's as if he sees no fruit from his labors. As a result, he is exhausted, depleted, and discouraged. So we really think about the, the life and ministry of Jesus. I, I think we see a lot of this. Yes, Jesus gains, in, in a sense, an initial popularity, an initial following, an initial gathering, But as he continues about the work appointed for him, what takes place? He's exhausted. He's rejected. He's abandoned. And he's crucified. I think it's important for us to understand that Jesus actually became fully human. And in a way that never endangered his faith in the Father, in a way that never endangers his full deity, it is good for us to see that Jesus in his life and ministry constantly wrestled against discouragement as he looked at Jerusalem and their rejection of his messianic ministry, as he considered the the dullness of his disciples as they failed to, to hear what he was saying as he even prayed in Gethsemane, that if there was any other way to accomplish the work of salvation, that the Father would make it possible. But in the midst of his exhaustion, in the midst of his frustration, where where does the servant look? Where does the servant go? It's the second half of verse 4. Yet, yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. The servant finds strength and life, not in the apparent obvious fruitfulness or fruitlessness of his labors. The servant finds strength and life and purpose and his identity and his security, not in his circumstances, but in the person and promises of God. And he entrusts himself to the Lord accordingly. Winston Churchill became Prime Minister of Great Britain May 10th, 1940. He gave the following speech three days later, a speech known as the Blood, Toil, Tears, and Sweat speech. I want to read a portion of it for you. 
In approaching World War II and the Nazi war machine, he said this, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. We have before us an an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and of suffering. You ask, what is our policy? I can say it is to wage war by sea, land, and air with all our might, with all the strength that God can give us, to wage war against a monstrous tyranny, never surpassed in the dark, lamentable catalog of human crime. That is our policy. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word. It is victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. You hear those words, and if you're like me, you're encouraged. You're ready to go. And for the British people, it was something of a calling to arms and a continuation of the early work in the fight against Hitler. What you may not know is that two weeks later, more than 300,000 men from the British Expeditionary Force had to be evacuated from Dunkirk. All looked lost. But it wasn't. In those moments, the people rallied together. They remembered their cause. And I would argue they remembered the good words of Winston Churchill in those moments to continue the fight, no matter how desperate, no matter how hard, no matter how exhausting it may be. In this passage, the Lord Jesus Christ, he remembers the words of his Father. He remembers the character of his Father. He remembers the calling that God has placed upon his life, and he continues about the work, even unto death. Think about his words as he prayed in Gethsemane. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. His final words on the cross Into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. You know, there's really a beautiful irony in the frustration and the exhaustion of the servant, isn't there? Because it's in the moment of his humiliation, in the moment of his seeming defeat, in the moment of his crucifixion, that he actually accomplishes the work of the Father that he actually accomplishes the everlasting salvation of his people from all places and in all times. Before we move on to the vindication of the servant, before we continue to look specifically at the person of Jesus, I, I do want to take a brief aside and recognize that if there is room for the servant of the Lord to be frustrated and disappointed, If there is room for the Lord Jesus Christ in the context of his earthly ministry to wrestle against exhaustion and desperation and discouragement and perhaps even at times a bit of disillusionment, then I think it's important for us to understand that as God's people, it is also appropriate, allowable, and even good for us to wrestle with the same things. This morning, we, we don't have to be happy, clappy, puppy, sunshine, and rainbow people. 
If this morning someone looks at you when you ask the quintessential Southern Sunday morning question, how you doing? And they respond with, not good. You can rest in that with them. And you can recognize that that is a beautiful, godly Christian response that can still be full of faith. Frustration is real. And it's a real part of a real faith. It's something that Jesus beautifully identifies with here in Isaiah 49. And I trust as we wrestle with frustration, we will find hope and life in the same place that Jesus did. Our right is with the Lord, and our recompense is ultimately with our God. So what about the vindication of the servant? Well, this is where we see the Lord actually work righteousness, redemption, perfection, even in the midst of the frustration of the servant's labors. Look at verse 5. Now the Lord says... He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. This is the recommissioning of the servant. You may have noticed there are a lot of really beautiful parallels between verse 5 and verse 1. Look back up. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother he named my name. Now the Lord says, verse 5, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant. Yahweh reiterates the fact that the servant is in fact the appointed instrument of salvation and he alone is going to do that work. The servant also finds here a beautiful renewed strength in that calling, in that recommissioning. He says, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. The servant remembers the Lord. The Lord remembers the servant. The servant remembers his work. He remembers the source of his strength, and he continues forward accordingly. As verse 6 begins to unfold, and really as as verse 5 hints at it, we also see here, as the servant is vindicated, the work that the servant is actually called to accomplish. This is beautiful and it's real. As we think about the condition of God's covenant people, as they would endure exile in Babylon and all that would come with that, it says in verse 5 that the servant first will bring Jacob back to the Lord and gather Israel to him. That means that the people are scattered. It means that the people are far away. Here's the scary part. They're there because of what they have done. Ultimately, it is not the Babylonians who took the people far away from the Lord. It is the people who, through their continual sin, distanced themselves from God. But what does the servant do? He brings them back. He gathers them in. But it gets better. (laughs) 
Because the work is also, it's expanded again in verse 6. We saw this touched on in verse 1 as the call goes out to the coastlands and the people from afar. We, we saw it in verse 2 as we talked about the idea of a sword being close at hand and arrows being far away. But here it becomes explicit, clear, and obvious because the Lord says to the servant, you know what? It's actually not enough. It is too light a thing for you to simply bring back Jacob and Israel. Here's what you're actually going to do. You're going to raise up the tribes of Jacob. The idea here is that the people are not only distant from the Lord, but they're lying face down. They are prostrated. They're humiliated. They're exhausted. If I had to guess... I'm probably not the only person in the room that feels that way many times. Distant, face down, exhausted, depleted, hopeless. The servant is coming. God says that the servant will also bring back, there's that phrase again, that idea, the preserved of Israel. The beautiful thing about that phrase is that God says he has constantly been at work. Even when we couldn't see it, what has he been doing? Preserving his people. And now he is going to fully redeem his people. Oh, but here it comes. At the end of verse 6, the servant will also be as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. As we think about this, I, I, I think it's really important to define what God means when he says, my salvation. What is he promising to do for the people close at hand and the people far away? What is he promising to do through the work of the servant? Well, what is salvation exactly? It is full and final redemption from the penalty, power, and presence of sin. What is salvation? It is full acceptance and welcome and belonging in the presence of a holy, eternal God. What is salvation exactly? It is freedom from death, freedom from damnation, freedom from guilt and shame and regret, no matter how great and how constant our sin. What is the salvation of the servant? Salvation brings joy and life and hope and obedience and peace. Salvation is new birth described for us by Jesus and won for us by Jesus. <laughs> Salvation is the remaking of our hearts and our very lives and the fullness of our identity and our humanity. Salvation is a relationship with God. Salvation is restored relationships with other people. Salvation is the promise of perfection, absolute lasting perfection in the life to come. So as we think about the work of the servant, 
as we think about, as we mull over, as we really seek to steal a phrase from Steve, marinate in what is being said here. We should be in a place of rejoicing together. Because this servant who has been promised in Isaiah 49, he has come. He has been revealed. He has been showcased. He lived. He died. And he has been raised from the dead to accomplish all of this for all of his people. I have a question for us. Earlier we said that the primary purpose of the servant was to bring glory to the Lord. It's right there in verse 3. You are my servant in whom I will be glorified. But verse 6 really ends with the people of God being deeply, eternally benefited and blessed. So, So which is it? Is it the purpose of the servant to bring glory to God or to secure the everlasting, eternal, great good of his people? It's both, and we never, never, ever should forget it. I've said this before, but those two things go together forever. The glory of God and our great good are inseparable purposes for the outworking of the servant. I want to apply this really whole passage in a couple of ways as we finish up together. First, if this morning you look into your life, maybe in the last 24 hours, in the last week, in the last month, in the last five years, if you look into your relationships, maybe it's your marriage, maybe it has something to do with your work or your place in school, maybe it has to do with the secret thoughts of your heart, the struggles that you've shared with no one or the struggles that have been wildly public in a way that has introduced shame and embarrassment and regret. If that is where you are this morning, (laughs) I want you to be encouraged. Why? Because that servant is real. And because the Lord Jesus Christ has come to raise up and gather back people just like me and you. And he will not be stopped in that work. You be encouraged, not because of your disobedience, not because of your shame, not because of your guilt, but because we have been given one who deals with all of those things perfectly and who actually reconciles his people. First application then of this whole passage is look to Jesus and live. The second application, though, is one that I think can be both humbling and encouraging in the process of everyday life as God's people. First, remember that you are not Jesus. You are not the servant of the Lord in the ultimate sense. That should free us from any arrogance or pride or superiority that we may feel. We are not ultimately sufficient to bring about our own salvation or the salvation of anyone else. We are not the hero of the story. Jesus is. So live in that freedom. But but secondly, as we continue to to think about this idea of, of applying the text, 
you don't have to be Jesus either. And that should be freedom from anxiety as we think about our daily lives. We don't have to pull other people up. What do we have to do? Walk alongside them and show them the ultimate servant of the Lord. As parents, it is not your job, if you're a parent in this room, it is not your job to work hard to ensure, ultimately, that that your children are well-educated or socially adapted or financially stable. Your primary work is to point your children day by day to the sufficiency of the saving Jesus Christ. If you're a student in this room today, and I mean any kind of student, you might be in third grade, you might be in the third year of your freshman year somehow. Guess what? You don't have to be sufficient for the task. You don't have to take your identity from what you can do. You get to lean on Jesus. And this might blow some of our minds. Your primary purpose is not to get straight A's and to maintain a perfect GPA. Your primary purpose is to walk alongside other people and to show them Jesus. And sometimes that may inconvenience your academic performance. I said it. If you were an elder in this church, and in just a few moments we are heading toward the installation and ordination of three new ruling elders for this church, your primary purpose is not to be Jesus. Your primary purpose is not to teach a Sunday school class or attend session meetings or develop policy, though those things matter. Your primary purpose is to stand at the foot of the cross with the people of this church and this community and to show them the sufficiency of Jesus in the way that you talk, in the way that you live, in the way that you showcase hospitality, and in the way that you serve. That is our job as elders. As we think about this passage of Scripture, it's a call to two things. Humility and hope. It's a recognizing of who we are as a scattered, downtrodden, distant people. And it's a showcase of who Jesus is. One who is prepared from eternity past for his work. One who wrestled with tears and his own blood for the good of his people. And one who is ultimately vindicated by his father as the one who would draw all those who are his to himself in everlasting salvation. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, as we consider this text, as we consider our own lives, and I trust as we consider Jesus together, Lord, I pray that you would lead us to humility and to hope. Lead us to the place where we recognize who we are. Certainly lead us to the place where we see that we are not, we are not 
sufficient for salvation. Humble us, God. But in the same moment, we pray that you would reveal to us the glory, the power, the wonder, the sufficiency, the finality of the servant that you have given us in Jesus Christ. May we look today at all that he is and all that he has accomplished and know that we are secure in him. We pray all this now in his name. Amen.